everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pilgrim Devotion. I am your host, Michael Howard, the senior pastor of Seaford Baptist Church, and this is a podcast for anyone inside or outside of Seaford Baptist Church who is living the pilgrim life, representing the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man. I'm glad you are back with us this week. We are continuing on with our discussion from last week. We jumped into cessationism and continuationism, and we were considering really two of the main arguments for cessationism, which would be what may be called the cluster argument or maybe called the foundational argument, uh, those two arguments. And let me define the terms again in case you have forgotten or in case you just aren't going to go back and listen to next week. Cessationism excuse me, is the view that God has ceased to grant spiritual gifts involving miraculous knowledge and power such as apostleship, prophecy, speaking in tongues, and healing, whereas continuationism asserts that God continues to apply such gifts to his church Today. That is a definition from Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley's Reform Systematic Theology, Volume 1, Revelation in God. I am really today diving in with Beakey and Smalley, okay? So I am interacting with their texts. They have a, a wonderful section on this in Volume 1 of their Reform Systematic Theology, which I recommend you. If you're a Presbyterian, if you're a Baptist, uh, you're confessionally Reformed, you ought to own this thing. Uh, Beaky's Presbyterian, Smalley's Baptist, and they have produced, uh, for me, this is the, uh, the most prolific systematic theology of, of our modern, uh, modern day times. Uh, you could go back, and, and there's going to be arguments, right? Some people are going to love uh, Bavink's Reform Dogmatics, okay? And some people are going to say, this is the systematic theology. Some people might be partial, partial to uh, Thomas Watson. It's not really a systematic theology. It's more of a commentary on the Westminster Catechism. But some people might be partial to Watson's Body of Divinity, which also is excellent. Some people might stand up and say, it's got to be Charles Hodge's three-volume systematic theology. Uh, some people are going to ride for Wayne Grudem. And they're going to say, no, you get out of here with your beaky and smally. It's Grudem. He's, he's the He's the one that we should be listening to from the modern era. Others love Millard Erickson's Christian, Christian theology. Everybody's got their best, or their um, the systematic theology that they think is best, and, and that is their favorite. Matthew Barrett is a guy that I really like, a uh, really sharp Baptist guy. Uh, he's in there with the Credo Fellows. Look at Credo Magazine. And he is uh, at Midwestern. He's a professor there. And I, I think Matthew Barrett's really sharp. I think he's one of the best Baptist minds we have today. I don't agree with him so much about Thomas Aquinas, but that's for another podcast. Uh, he's big on Aquinas. I'm not. But I, I do really, really like Matthew Barrett. He is working for Zondervan uh, Academic. He is working on a systematic theology as we speak. So that'll be really good. Uh, I really, really look forward to that coming out. But as of right now, I, I haven't found anything better written by guys that are that are still active and ministering uh, than what Beaky and Smalley have produced. It's four volumes. The first three volumes are out. You can get them. The last volume will be coming out in May, which I think is mainly focused on the last things, on the end times. So I'm looking forward to that. But uh, I'll be interacting with their text. If you have their text, I'm on page 410. And, and it goes, really, everything I'll be talking through today, I'm not going to talk through all of it, but uh, it goes all the way through page 457. So they have quite a bit to say about cessationism, the cessation of special revelation, which is really what we're talking about, and uh, continuationism. So 
I want to really deal with some continuationist arguments uh, that are out there. I, I put out two of the main cessationist arguments, the ones I find most convincing last week. Uh, really, I think when it comes to what is you know the uniqueness of the apostolic age when it comes to what does it mean that foundation is being laid when it comes to the miraculous and where we see high volume of miracles in uh, the history of um, of redemption. I think that that's where you're really going to see cessationists and continuationists part from one another. So that's what I was trying to deal with last week. But I just want to deal with some continuationist arguments and and try to understand where continuationist brother and sister brothers and sisters are coming from. And again, just because you're continuationist, it doesn't mean you're a Pentecostal. Just because you're a continuationist doesn't mean that you believe in a second baptism of the Spirit or a distinct second event where you're receiving the Spirit and it's evidenced by sign gifts. Uh, not all continuationists believe, believe that. And there are continuationists that I love. Okay, I love. I'm talking about John Piper here, folks. I love John Piper. If you came in here and you looked at my bookshelves, uh, looked at my bookshelves, I don't know, <laughs> like I said that weird. You come and look at my bookshelves in my office. There are very few names that you're going to see, and it and it it's it's frequently as John Piper. I mean, he he's taken up half a shelf here. Uh, love, love, love John Piper. I like Gavin Ortland, who made that YouTube video responding to G3 cessationist documentary. I didn't love his YouTube video. I didn't think it was great, but I love Gavin Ortland. He's a continuationist. My best friend, uh, who is the pastor of Weston Baptist Church, uh, Kenny Van Horn. Uh, Kenny would tell you he's a continuationist. This is a faithful brother, and these are not men who, you know, you shouldn't talk about them in the same breath you talk about Benny Hinn, okay? You shouldn't talk about them in the same breath as you even talk about Pentecostals, in my mind. I mentioned Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Wayne Grudem is a continuationist. We're actually walking through his systematic theology together in our Sunday school class here at the church. I mentioned that last episode. So good continuationist brothers and sisters out there. This is not a top-tier issue. This is not something that defines whether or not you're orthodox in your, uh, in your, uh, that you, you hold to orthodox Christian position. This doesn't define, this shouldn't, shouldn't determine uh, or define where you're going to go to church. I don't think we should stop going to church with each other over this. Um, well, if you were going to a church that was continuationist and they're like really like weighing out prophecy and stuff like that in the church, you might, you might, but not all brothers who are continuationists are going to be practicing that way even in their churches because there's many who hold to the continuationist position, but they are functioning cessationist. So there's a lot of nuance here is my point. We shouldn't be sharpening pitchforks over this. Uh, and I want to be able to try to understand the continuationist argument here on the podcast today. So let's jump into it. First of all, I started the last podcast by reading from Joel chapter 2. And in Joel 2, there was this prophecy about the Spirit of God being poured out on the young, the old, the male, the female, with signs and wonders. And then Peter stands up in Acts 2, as the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, and he says, what you see in Joel 2 is being fulfilled here. And he explains to the men of Jerusalem and Judea what you're hearing. Us speaking in these tongues that are not our heart language, and you think we're drunk. We're not drunk. We have the Spirit of God uh, who, who is empowering us to witness to the good news of the kingdom. And the king's name is Jesus. You know him. He was crucified. He was buried. He resurrected. Right? So 
uh, a continuationist will say, well, look, that is God's promise to his church. And this promise, this, that the spirit of God who rested on just, you know, certain leaders in Israel's history, it's now going to be upon every son and daughter of God. It's going to be on every single believer in the church. Uh, Numbers eleven twenty nine says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put a spirit upon them. And the continuationist is going to say, Moses's desire has come true. And, and it is true for every believer from uh, the, the time of Jesus's ascension to Jesus's return, okay, throughout the entirety of the last days. Now, the reply that I would have to that, and that Beaky and Smalley have in their book, is that the signs mentioned by Joel, they don't have to continue throughout the entire age of the New Testament church in order for God to be keeping the promise that he made through Joel's prophecy. So the promise there speaks to signs and wonders. Let me pull up Acts chapter 2. So in, in Acts 2, uh, there is, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your uh, old men shall dream dreams. And, and so then you, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth in Acts chapter 2, verse 19. And I think that when you read this, you have to take into account all of the language here. You can't just focus out, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So this is going to happen in the last days. When does the last days begin? The last days begin really with the end of Jesus's ministry on the earth. And Beaky and Smalley point out that the day of the Lord comes in a partial sense in the earthly ministry and death of Jesus, and it is marked by these wonders and signs, these cosmic disturbances, if you will. And so it doesn't have to be that these things would continue throughout all of the eschatological last days that we are living in. It, it certainly could be that they're just being poured out during the apostolic age that comes on the heels of the earthly ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And so there's no denial, at least there shouldn't be, from the, the uh, cessationists that we all have the Spirit of God. What we're saying is that the Spirit of God does not have to be working throughout the entirety of the last days the way that he's working at the beginning of the last days in the apostolic age in order for Joel's promise to come true. Because it's not what the text says, right? That is not what is explicitly being said by Joel. That is not explicitly what's being explained by Peter. And I don't think that's a workaround. Like, I, I think that that would be a totally responsible interpretation of that passage. We are not receiving new words from God by the Spirit, okay? And I think that that's really what a lot of this is going to come down to. It's going to come down to new revelation. Your, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. We're talking about new revelation. That's not, that's not continuing on throughout the last days, New revelation comes to a close uh, 
with the, the, the closing of the canon, with the book of Revelation being finished by the Apostle John. That, that is the end of the canon, and that is the closing of God's word. And now we have his word. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's our rule of faith. It's not going to lead us astray. Uh, it is sufficient for everything that we need in terms of knowing how to be saved, in terms of living a life of godliness, in terms of what to expect in the last days. So the idea that only the continuationist believes that God's promise to Joel is being fulfilled, I, I totally reject that as a cessationist because I believe that the promise was fulfilled in the days of the apostles, the beginning of the last days. Now, another common uh, continuationist argument is that if we read 1 Corinthians 12, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12 is making it seem like we would expect sign gifts and that we would expect prophecy and new revelation and the working of miracles of these different things, tongues. We would expect these things to be continuing, that they would be normative in the church today. And so, as you read there, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, starting in verse 8, it says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, uh, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, uh, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so you will hear a continuation to say, see, I mean, there it is. It's right there. It's right there in the text. And, and Paul writes this, and we should just expect that this is the way it's going to be. Now, I think there are plenty of other times in Paul's letters where the nature of his writing is what Beaky and Smalley call occasional, meaning he is addressing specific matters to specific churches, right? Matters that are pertinent to those churches in that time. And there is a quote-unquote burden of proof that a lot of times gets put on the, the cessationist. And the continuationist says, well, you got to show me chapter and verse that these things are not for the church today. I think you can throw that burden of proof right back at the continuations and say, you got to show me where we should expect that this should be normative for the church. Because Paul talks about it simply in the book of, you know, here in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, lots of talk about these things, right? Where the spiritual gifts are mentioned in other places of the New Testament, you don't see these gifts being talked about. And then as you get into the books written in the, the latter part of the first century, particularly as you get past 60 AD, you really don't see any of this being addressed at all. And you say, well, why is that? Well, because I think there is the expectation from the biblical writers that these things are going to pass away with the first generation of the church, with the apostolic age, that these things will not be normative for the church going forward. And I use that word normative, by the way, because I think that's important. We're not saying that... A cessationist is not saying, Smalley and Beaky are not saying, a cessationist I don't think should say, that God would never heal, that God would never uh, give somebody the ability to speak in a tongue they don't know for the sake of the witness of the gospel. I, I do believe that God's not going to give you a new word or, or prophecy or new revelation. I do believe that. But we're not going to say that God is out of the miracle business. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that 
it is not normative for the church to be seeing people having these giftings and then using them regularly. And, and I don't think we do see that. I think that, you know, we don't see people going around just healing everybody. And I know Gavin Ortland in his video, he's like, well, that doesn't mean that, that they don't have the gift, you know. It doesn't mean you're not going to be, you're not going to just be exercising it all the time just because you have the gift. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think we talk about the other spiritual gifts that way, if we're being honest. Like, when I talk about the gift of administration, when, when I talk about the, you know, the gift of hospitality, I don't expect that somebody's only going to be hospitable a handful of times in their lives or even once a year. I, I expect that this is something they will be doing in a normative way. And so what we're saying is that these, these giftings are not operating in a normative way in the church today. And the, the continuationists will often say that the cessationist is just dismissing large swaths of Scripture. I don't think that's true. I think that the cessationist is simply saying, hey, I, I, I don't think that Paul's point was for this to be normative for the whole church, and I don't think the spirit who inspired Paul to write intended for this to be normative for the whole church. And, um, and, and you know, they say, well, the burden of proof's on you. Well, I think the proof is in the fact that the New Testament is silent on this, particularly as you get past the letters written after 60 AD. Um, I also want to say uh, regarding all of this that when we think about these gifts and, and we think about the way they're practiced in the church today, are they done in an orderly way, right? Because when we read what the Bible says, all things should be done decently and in order, okay? So a cessationist, or continue, I, I keep, gosh, I keep messing up. I keep mixing them up. Sorry about that. I'm sure it's incredibly annoying. The continuationist uh, will point to 1 Corinthians 14, 39 and 40 and say, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in, in order. And they say, there's the command. And you say, well, are you doing them in order? So I think what we see most of the time, and, and I don't think I'm being ungenerous here, I think what we see most of the time when it comes to the practice of prophecy, when it comes to the particularly the practice of prophecy through the gift of tongues is something that is not done decently and in order. I don't think that is what characterizes a lot of Pentecostal and charismatic gatherings. And so I would say, are you even obeying the command that you say is for today and the way that Paul says to obey it? Uh, I, I also, a minute ago, I wanted to mention this. Uh, a continuationist often will say, well, well, if you're going to... I heard Gavin Ortland say this. If you're going to say that tongues aren't for today because they're really only talked about here in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, well, I mean, hey, Lord's Supper is only really talked about in the pastoral epistles in 1 Corinthians, uh, in Paul's pastoral epistles in 1 Corinthians uh, 11. So is that not for today? Well, the Lord's Supper was instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he made clear what the purpose of it uh, for it is throughout the entirety of the church age. I don't think we see Paul telling us what the purpose of these things are for the entirety of the church age. Instead, I think he is telling us what the purpose of them are for this, uh, for specifically for the apostolic age. And I think there was a lot of confusion about it in Corinth. So he is, uh, during a time in which these gifts are operating and active, he is, you know, defining uh, these gifts. He is directing them on how to use these gifts. But again, that doesn't mean it's for today. And I know they'll say, well, you're making an argument from silence. Well, silence can be deafening. 
silence can be deafening. So I, I, I just have to ask, what's going on with the rest of the New Testament? What's going on with the rest of Paul's letters? Why don't we see more talk about this? Why don't we see more instruction about this if it is intended for uh, the entirety of the church age and is to be normative in the church? All right, I think I've kicked on that horse enough. Historical movements, continuationists will be like, hey, look in, look in church history. I mean, you have, you know, uh, these different people in church history that were believing in, in the miraculous. And they just kind of say that. And they won't, they don't really look under the hood there, or they don't want you to look under the hood either way. But if you look under the hood, I mean, if we're talking about the Quakers, like, like talk to John Bunyan and John Owen about the Quakers. Are we really going to point to them and say that these folks are a bastion of orthodoxy? Uh, if we're going to talk about St. Augustine, I mean, I look at Augustine and Calvin as the two mountain peaks of theology and Christian history. So I, I'm not here trying to say, well, you, you shouldn't be a fan of Augustine. But, man, Augustine believed in some weird stuff, all right? Like, he believed that, that there were miraculous things being done through the relics of dead saints, like in their bones and in their in their remains, that 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 miracles are being done through the bones and the remains of dead saints. I, I don't think that that people want to sign up for that. <laughs> I, I don't. I think some of the 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 wildest Pentecostals would say, "Pump the brakes!" Right? It's claimed that Francis of Assisi lifted another monk into the air by the power of his breath, Beaky and Smalley say, and that he lay naked for a long time in a blazing fire without being burned. Do you believe that? Do you believe that happened? I don't believe that happened. There, there's people in church history who recorded that Patrick, you know, St. Patrick of Ireland, right? He, he was baptized by a blind priest who could not read the order of baptism until he was healed by a stream of water that was called forth by holding the hand of a baby and then making the sign of the cross on the ground. Does that sound right? And You know what I'm saying? Like, and then you, if you want to start pointing to like the Azusa Street Revival, then, then, then you are trying to build your case from Pentecostalism. And that's a whole different podcast, the history of, of, of Pentecostalism. And, and I would say that the roots of Pentecostalism are not, it's not great. Okay, a, a lot of what's there is not great. But again, that's a different podcast. Um, the Puritans. They held to the cessation of special revelation. Absolutely, they did. I mentioned that I, I do believe that when you read the Reformed confessions, particularly uh, to that, you know, Presbyterians and Baptists would be fired up about the Westminster Confession and then the 1689 um, London Baptist Confession. I think that it's pointing to cessationism, I think it's pushing you towards it. So here's paragraph one of the 1689. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, fallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. General revelation can't save you. It can tell you about God. It can't tell you what God is like, right? Uh, at least not to the point of having saving knowledge. That's what it's saying there. Yet they, uh, okay, uh, therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal himself and to declare his uh, will unto his church. And afterward, 
for better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing. So God has deposited his truth in writing. Praise God, Genesis to Revelation, the sufficient word, which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary. Now listen to this. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto people now being completed. I think that's, I think it's fairly clear. And so that is often casually left out, especially by reform brothers who are continuationists. And again, I'm not trying to throw rocks. I'm not trying to be ungenerous. Now I sound a lot like Gavin Ortland because he always couches like his statements uh, in that way. And, and I appreciate him for that. I, I'm not trying to be, but I do want to stand up for the position and say that I don't think history is with continuationism the way continuationism will often say history is with continuationism. Like when a, when a paedo-baptist stands up and says the majority of the history of Christianity has been paedo-baptist, I really can't argue with that as a credo-baptist. It doesn't mean they were all right, <laughs> right? Uh, it doesn't mean they were all right, but I really can't argue with the fact that throughout the majority of Christian history, paedo-baptism has been the dominant strain. But I don't think that uh, continuationists can make that argument against a cessationist. A lot of times people will point to their personal experiences and they'll say, well, you can't argue with my uh, continuationism. I've experienced it, right? Well, many people of different religions have supernatural experiences they point to as testimony. We have to rely on what the Word of God ultimately says. Like, it, it, that's all that matters here. What does the Word of God say? What arguments are we building from the rule of faith? Your experience has to be subservient to the word of God. It has to bow down to the word of God. We cannot stand up over the word of God and dictate meaning to it through our experience. We can't do that. And so when Christians are, are speaking, I, I, and again, I'm going to say this. I've heard Paul Washer say this. I do not mean to be disparaging, but kind of the, the Shanawana Honda sounding uh, tongues, okay? I've heard him use that utterance to kind of mimic what you hear when somebody is having the quote-unquote ecstatic utterance. When somebody's doing that, they might really believe that is from God's spirit, but that very much could be from their spirit. And I want to be very careful about saying this. It could also be from a different spirit. Not God's, not yours. That could be from a spirit that is demonic and that is actually anti-Christian and anti-Christ. I'm not saying that everybody speaking in tongues is, is, is having a demonic experience, okay, or that uh, they're being influenced in a demonic way, or that they're having some interaction with a demonic spirit. That is not what I'm saying. But I do think that the impulse could rise from a spirit that is not of the Lord, and that is not of man. So you should be careful about that as well. Uh, all right, I... I'm so tempted to tell a funny story. I'm not going to. I, I'm going to. My, my pastor in high school went to a revival when he was a teenager because he just loved to hear preaching. There was a, a kind of a sawdust, you know, tent revival in town. He said, I'm going to go. So he goes, and they're speaking in tongues there, and they're going around, and they're laying hands on people so they can have baptism of the Spirit and speak in tongues. It's happening all around them. And they lay hands on him, and he really wanted to speak in tongues, but nothing was happening. And they keep praying, and, and so he started speaking in Spanish because he'd been learning Spanish at school, and he, <laughs> he hoped that that would make them think he'd received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And they made him leave. They told him to get out because they thought he was mocking them, and he really wasn't. Um, 
That shows you, though, just how experiential and how, how experientially based some of this can be. Not all of it. Not all continuationists would even use experience as one of their main arguments. So I want to be careful about what I'm saying here. But I think we got to be careful when we're talking about experiences. Continuationists also will say that, you know, a cessationist just doesn't believe in the supernatural or some sort of deist, just believe God, you know, wound up the world like a clock and let it go. That's not true. Uh, the, the cessationist does not uh, say that, you know, we are somehow, you know, or does not, does not argue that we are, uh, that there's no miraculous uh, events at all in the Bible, certainly doesn't say that, and that there's no miraculous things that happen today or can happen today. It's not saying that. Uh, it's, it's specifically a conversation, I think, about are these revelatory gifts, right? These gifts that are producing new revelation for today, and can people perform miracles with the consistency that they were performed in the time of the apostles? And I, I believe the answer is no. Now, we're heading towards the end uh, of this podcast, and I really don't want to do a third week about this. So I want to move on to talking a little bit about the issue of prophecy, because I, I, I think that for me, this is where like I really just, I draw such a hard line, I really cannot get down with, uh, with the continuationist argument at all. Um, when we read the Old Testament, there, there's a lot of different types of prophets, right? I mean, some of them are men, some of them are women, but here's what they all have in common. They speak the word of God without fail, infallibly. So Moses gives a test, and I'm reading this actually from Beaky and Smalley, and they like the KJV when they can use it, so I'm going to use some KJV here. Brace, brace thyself. If thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, Thou shalt not be afraid of him. So, meaning, if God has spoken his word, his word will prove true. If God has not spoken his word, then this person claiming to speak for God is a false prophet, not a true prophet, and is actually speaking in arrogance and in pride, and they are in rebellion against God. They have stood themselves up in opposition to God, which is a scary thing to do. Uh, Jeremiah, here's a little more KJV for you, Jeremiah 28.9, The prophet which prophesieth of the of peace... When the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. So the expectation is that authentic prophecy is not going to have error in it. It's not going to mislead. It is not going to deter from the, uh, from the word of God it, it, because it is the word of God, right? And it's not going to go against other things we find in God's word, and it's not going to turn out to be wrong. Richard Gaffin on this says, In the plainest possible terms... Uh, he's talking about he's talking about Agabus uh, in in Acts chapter twenty one. He says, in the plainest possible terms, here the words of Agabus in his identity as a prophet are the words of the Holy Spirit himself, a quote of what the Spirit says. So the word of the prophet is the word of God. You want to talk about burden of proof? I I I hit that tennis ball right back at the continuationist, and I say. I believe you are making an argument from silence, if we're going to talk about arguments from silence. And I don't really have a big of a problem with arguments from silence. I think you can build, build them. Like I said, silence can be deafening. But I think you're making an argument from silence. You've got to show me in the text where there truly is a difference 
between an Old Testament and New Testament prophet and an Old Testament and New Testament, uh, Old Testament, New Testament prophecy. Sam Storms um, talks about this kind of like two levels of prophecy. He's a continuationist man. Uh, I believe he's Baptist. I, I, I sometimes like what Sam Storms has to say. Good brother, right? Just disagree with him when it comes to this. So he's going to hold to this two levels of prophecy. And I want to focus on this because I think this is what you hear most of the time from the Reformed camp, like from, from Sam Storms, from Wayne Grudem. And Storms says that there's a modern prophecy in the New Covenant era that is different from the prophecy of the Old Testament uh, era. And he says that God's revelation to modern-day prophets, it's altogether free from error. It's, it's infallible, just like God is infallible, because God, he can't give fallible prophecy. Like, see, this, this is where the continuationist is like, uh-oh, we got people saying things that we know are wrong, but we're saying they're prophets. So what are we going to do about that? Well, they say, well, the prophecy is, is perfect, right? Oh, but the man giving it is imperfect. So he messed up. Uh, well, I, in the Old Covenant, right, the, the prophets, they were imperfect men. They didn't mess up. If they did, you said, well, then it's not a prophet, and it's not prophecy. So they've kind of created this new two-level prophecy that I just don't think the Scripture gives them the ability to do. I mean, it's like Peaky and Smalley say, the burden of proof rests upon the continuationist idea of two-level prophecy. Uh, Grudem says, prophecy occurs when a revelation from God is reported in the prophet's own words. The error basically comes when, you know, the prophet misinterprets, misapplies what God has, has told him. Each person would weigh what is said in his own mind, Grudem says, accepting some of the prophecy is good and helpful, rejecting some of it is erroneous or misleading. I, I, I really struggle with this. First of all, I struggle with the idea that there is prophecy at all because I believe prophecy is revelation from God and I don't think we're getting any more revelation from God. I think the revelation we have from God is the Bible. It's like Charles Spurgeon said, you come to me, you tell me you got a word from the Lord and I say, well, what is it? You say, you need to adopt an orphan. Well, I'll weigh that out and figure out if I do need to adopt an orphan, right? But I know that's in line with God's word. I don't have to check it. So I don't think it's prophecy. I think you maybe got an impression on your heart from the Holy Spirit and you came and laid that on me. I may have had an impression on my heart from the Holy Spirit that I should be adopting. And hey, things are starting to come together here, right? God's working. But it's not new revelation. It's just confirming what's already revealed in his word and calling me to be obedient, it, uh, obedient to it in a very specific way. But if you came to me and you said, um, I think that you need to start preaching, uh, I don't know, I think that you need to start preaching topically. You say, well, why do you think I need to do that? Well, God told me. He, I got a revelation from God. Well, I'm going to go check that with the Word of God. If that doesn't line up with the Word of God, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to do it. And it's not prophecy. And it's not a word. It's not a good word. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's not lining up with the Word of God. Therefore, it's just not true. It's, it's bad. It's, it's, it's untrue. Um, whatever impression you think you got from the Lord, it wasn't from the Lord. I remember I worked with a guy who came to work and he was like, oh, I'm going to be a worship leader, man. I just bought this $1,500 keyboard, put it on my credit card. I'm going to the debt. I'm trusting the Lord. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, God told me, man. God told me. Uh, he, 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 he gave me this prophecy that I'm going to be this worship leader and whatever. And two weeks later, he took the keyboard back because he couldn't afford the payments. 
And I, I didn't want to be like, well, did God change his mind? Like, what was going on there? This whole idea of this two-level prophecy, of these words from the Lord and saying their word from the Lord and putting them, to actually use the term prophecy in talking about them, I'm, I'm very, very uncomfortable with it. I don't think that it is uh, correct for us to do. And I think most of the time what people are calling prophecy is simply an impression that the Spirit has put on their hearts. And I do believe he does that. God leads his people, right? Spirit's not dormant. He's living. He's active in our lives. And so when somebody says, well, I think God is telling me or I think God's leading me, I think what they mean is he's, he's impressing on my heart to be obedient to his word in this certain way. And if whatever he's impressing in your heart doesn't line up with a word, like Spurgeon said, hey, from the Lord, and I don't need it. So, yeah, I reject this idea of these two levels of prophecy. Continuationists sometimes will say, well, what are you going to do about all the, the women? You, you, got, you got like women prophesying, right? And you got women prophesying in the New Testament. I have no problem with that. The idea of somebody prophesying does not mean that they're an elder, and it doesn't mean they would be usurping the position of an elder, because uh, that's what they say. Like, oh, if you're a complementarian, then you're going to get yourself into trouble because they're prophesying over men. I, I don't have a problem with that as long as they're, they're doing it under the authority of the elder of the church, which I certainly believe that's what we're seeing Paul instructing in 1 Corinthians. So don't have an issue uh, with that at all. I don't think that when you read 1 Corinthians, there's any threat that as the women are doing this, somehow the role of the elder is being uh, challenged or that the elder is being unseated in any way and that a plurality of men leading the church is somehow threatened by a woman prophesying in the church. I, 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 again, I think that is something, the burden of proof, I think, lies with the continuationists to show me how a woman prophesying is uh, somehow, you know, challenging the authority of the elder of that local church. So I, I really believe that we shouldn't be messing around with this two-level prophecy. Instead, I believe that we should have the same standards for prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think that Paul is clear that the prophets are laying the foundation of the church. And so the same standard is being used. Old Testament is being used in the apostolic age. But then once the office of prophet passed away, uh, that's it. It's done. And the office of prophet passes away with the close of the canon. No more need. No more revelation. And why is that? Because Jesus Christ is the, he is the mediator of revelation to his people, right? All revelation comes ultimately to the people of God through the word of God, who is Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus is the final revelation of God. And so in light of the finality of Christ, in light of the foundation, and he's the cornerstone, right? And then the foundation being laid by new covenant apostles and prophets, we say now that special revelation, new revelation, it has ceased. And we have God's uh, infallible word, and we have a deposit of truth from the apostles and the prophets who were given that doctrine by who? By Jesus Christ, right? Just as all truth comes from Jesus, it's, it's, it's been deposited now in writing in the word. And, and that's exactly what the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying in, in, paragraph, in uh, section 1, paragraph 1. It's exactly what the 1689 is saying in section 1, paragraph 1. So, 
Uh, there are pastoral concerns I also have about this that Beaky shares. Uh, I think that when you have the two-level prophecy, then it enables leaders to stand up and say, God told me, and then you can't argue with that, right? It enables people to read the Word of God and say, well, I'm not going to be a Calvinist because the Spirit of God told me, or I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be an Arminian because the Spirit of God told me, and you can't argue with it. Well, okay, right? Uh, I think it can lead to people being in bondage to very, uh, as, as Beaky and Smalley say, very presumptuous beliefs. So they run around thinking that because somebody told them you're going to get healed or you're going to get a new car or whatever, they think that's going to happen. And then when it doesn't, they doubt God's goodness. When really they should just be doubting this person who's saying they're being prophetic when really I don't think they're a prophet at all. Uh, I, I think that people can start to put too much weight and thoughts and impressions and feelings over the Word of God. Like I said, the Word of God is what is superior, and our experience and our feelings and our impressions and our thoughts have to submit themselves to the authority of the Word. So, uh, last quote here from Beaky and Smalley, if we adopt with storms and grudem a view of prophecy as a mixture of divine and human ideas, we find ourselves in a very unstable position. The life of the believer is ruled by the revealed will of God. What shall the Christian do if that revelation is clouded, unclear, and fallible? Can't let that happen. The best way to do it is to say uh, that the foundation's been laid, Christ the cornerstone, apostles, prophets, and now with the foundation laid, the church is being built with the sufficient word of God through the leadership of elders in the local church. It's beautiful doesn't need more than that. I think it's what the Word gives us. So I'll wrap it up there. I've gone long already. Christian, how's your soul? How's God's grace at work in your life? How would you like for His grace to be at work in your, your life? If you consider these questions, you need to talk to a pastor. Please reach out to us. Connect at SeafordBaptist.com. Until next time, keep living the pilgrim life. <laughs>